0: Pentecost. Wow. Snuck up on me. 50 days since Easter already. Can you believe it? Gosh, it's just moving so quickly. Normally I do a uh, an actual, you know, Pentecost message dealing with the actual story in, in Acts 4 that Marion read. But today I thought what I'd do is come at it a little obliquely by f- continuing with the red letter study that we've been on. And uh, if it's anyone joining us for the first time, that refers to the... Red letters, in some Bible editions, the words of Jesus, their direct quotations, are printed in red ink to set them off from the rest of the text. So we've been going through the words of Jesus, um, not in any kind of particular order, more in a thematic group, but generally following the, the four Gospels in a harmonic way, um, from the beginning to the end, or at least from the beginning to the Sermon on the Mount. I don't know if we'll get much past that, because it gets pretty lengthy, but um, but today, talking about the healings that we're going to be talking about also lended itself to this movement that Pentecost represents, uh, this movement between head and heart, this movement between thinking about and simply being aware of that constitutes uh, kingdom consciousness, if we can use that term. So three weeks ago, gosh, it's already been three weeks since we did a red letter study because Mother's Day and, whatever we did, off oh, 16th anniversary last week, um, we talked about a tale of two healings. And the two healings were in John 5 and John 9. And they had to do with the infirm man who is at the uh, the pool of Bethsaida and, uh, and then the uh, man who is blind from birth. And Jesus heals both of them. Two very different individuals. They're both healed, but they couldn't be further apart. And the text really highlights that difference between the two of them. Because the first one, the infirm man has been laying by the pool there for over 38 years. So not showing a lot of initiative or, or uh, imagination because when Jesus comes and says, do you wish to be healed, which should be the biggest no-brainer of all time, right? He can't simply say yes. He starts making excuses for why he can't get into the pool when the angels stir up the water fast enough because only the first one in by that folk legend was the one who was healed. There's nobody to help him. So he has this victim's mentality. He has this uh, almost a sort of entitlement, I suppose you could say, but he's disconnected. He doesn't have community. He doesn't have friends. He doesn't seem to have family. He's all by himself, hanging out all those decades. And then you fast forward to the man born blind, and as soon as the, uh, the little entourage, Jesus' entourage, he and his followers come upon this man, the first question that comes to him is, well, who sinned that this man would be born blind? Because in their culture, their worldview, that's the way they understood it. If these horrible things befell an individual or family, then it was because of some sort of sin. There was always that payback sort of thing. And it didn't even have to be he that sinned, because, of course, he was born blind, right? His parents could have sinned, and this was the result of that. And, of course, Jesus turns it on his head, and he says, nobody sinned. You know? This man was born the way he was for the glory of God in some way that we haven't seen yet. But even more important than that, it seems to me, of course, the theme was, it was sin and defining sin through these healing stories, this man is deeply connected in relationship. He has his parents around him. He is intelligent. He's articulate. He's courageous. When he is questioned in a withering crossfire by the Pharisees and the leaders about who it was that healed him on a Sabbath, no less, because both of these men were healed on a Sabbath, he is able to just stand and hold his ground. He takes the Pharisees to school, basically. And then his parents are called in to testify for him. And it's a it's a model of, a picture of, this connection that the infirm man had not at all. And the interesting thing is that Jesus tells the infirm man, after he heals him, go and sin no more so that nothing worse happens. But when the blind man is healed, he doesn't tell him anything about sin. Does that mean that the blind man never sinned? Ever in his life? Well, of course not. But he wasn't living in sin. And there's a big difference between the two. That's why Jesus doesn't correct him. Why not? What is Jesus trying to teach us about sin? As usual, With Jesus, the answer is going to be embedded into the text. It's going to be embedded in the details. It's going to be embedded in metaphor and story. He's never explicit because he knows that as we unravel this, as we live through our own experience of life, it's about showing and not telling. We are going to learn something more deeply if we actually live through it ourselves. When someone just tells us something third-party, yeah, we can take it in. But it hasn't gone through into that deep place in our life. And Jesus knows this deeply. This is the way he teaches, never answering questions directly. So, the first century people that Jesus is talking to, the ones that are seeing these events take place, are much more tuned in to the nature of what's going on around them than we would be, obviously. And since both of these occur on a Sabbath, they're much more tuned in to the nature of these Sabbath controversies because they're living the laws surrounding the Sabbath. We, on the other hand, 2,000 years later in an alien culture, are going to need that context restored to us. Now, Jesus heals this man, this blind man, in a very strange way. And that strange way has caused like 2,000 years now of speculation and controversy about what in the world was he doing. So let's take a look at John 9, starting at verse 1, and let's just read this again, just in an abbreviated fashion, since we read it three weeks ago. But just to get a refresher, what's going on here? So as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? And Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Skipping to verse 6. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle. And he applied the clay to the man's eyes and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated, Sent. So when he went away and washed and came back seeing, skipping to verse 14, now it was a Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. So that's a little strange. Maybe even a little disgusting, right? Why did Jesus heal with spit and dirt? What was he doing with that? Why not just speak a healing word? He'd done that before. What's he doing here? Remember, it's a Sabbath What is going on? You know, scholars have been asking this question for millennia, literally. Now, I went ahead and, and on your behalf, looked for all the answers I could find. And I have here the top ten reasons (laughs) that Jesus used spit to heal this blind man. All right? So, Allah, Johnny Carson, number ten. Saliva was believed to have healing properties in the ancient world, especially for eye problems. And ancient healers used it regularly. Jesus' healing powers gradually increased. He started healing as other healers did. In fact, in Mark 8, which we're going to talk about in a little bit here, with the blind man, he had to try twice to get it right. (laughs) Later in his ministry, he could heal with just a word, even from a remote location. So this is um, practice making perfect. This is what the scholars is saying, you know. And you can all kind of vote interiorly how you feel about that one. You know? Number nine, Jesus' healing powers required faith on the part of the person that he was healing. If the person had little faith, he used conventional methods to bolster their faith in him. All right, number eight, just as God's word proceeds out of Jesus' mouth, Jesus' saliva is metaphor for God's power proceeding out of his mouth so John Chrysostom adds and he was one of the early church fathers in the 4th century John Chrysostom adds Jesus used saliva instead of water to make the clay mud so neither the waters of Siloam the pool nor the earth the clay would get credit for the healing man is clay saliva is word Jesus is the mixture of humanity living with the word of God there's a certain elegance to that huh and of course John Chrysostom is is no slouch number 7 Jesus was being kind if he healed the blind man all at once the brightness and sudden images would be disturbing or frightening so he took a more gradual approach right put the stuff on go wash and you know that's going to be a lot more of an ease into obviously the man has never seen in his entire life so there's that number 7 number 6 the, there's a Jewish tradition that the saliva of the firstborn true heir of a family had healing properties. Jesus was proving that he was the firstborn of God. Number 5. Through the common though the common people believed that saliva had healing properties, the religious leaders considered it religiously impure, ritually impure. By using it to heal, Jesus was siding with the people against the authorities. A little bit of a stretch. Number four, by healing different ways each time, Jesus was discouraging any belief in the various healing techniques or healing methods themselves, always pointing to God's power. Number three, to spit in someone's face is an ultimate insult, a humiliating curse. Jesus spitting in the faces of these people showed that they were cursed by God as sinners and in need of healing spiritually as well as physically. Thumbs down on that one. Number two, Jews believe that a baby born with disabilities, missing limbs, missing sight, etc., were brought into the world before God was finished creating them. God created Adam out of the clay of the earth, so Jesus is using the same method to finish God's incomplete work. And finally, number one, since the man born blind was incomplete, he wasn't just blind, but had no eyeballs at all, just empty sockets. Jesus used the mud to form two new eyeballs and placed them in his head. <laughs> oh, man. This stuff is out there. Is any of this correct? Any one of these ten? Do you think it really tells the story of why Jesus used spit and mud or clay to heal? I have no idea. Some are seem kind of plausible. Some are kind of elegant. Some are just silly. But if we use the principle of Occam's razor, are you familiar with Occam's razor? William of Occam was an English Franciscan friar and a philosopher back in the 14th through the 15th centuries. And his razor was a philosophical device that he used to shave away unneeded assumptions in any kind of argument and to cut between competing conclusions in any kind of logical or philosophical argument. So Occam's razor applied to any conclusion is going to be that uh, competing conclusions is going to be that the one with the fewest assumptions that were made and the simplest explanation is probably going to be the correct one. And Occam's razor is used all the time in, in philosophy and in debates and so on and so forth. And so if we try to apply Occam's razor to all this, think of all the assumptions that are here. Think of all the competing conclusions here. If we're going to really cut to the bone here, if we're going to just shave away the assumptions, and if we're going to look for the simplest explanation, it's going to take us in another direction. And one of the things it's going to do is take us right to the heart of the matter because this is a Sabbath controversy. This is one of many. Jesus used the Sabbath over and over again as case in point to make the point that he needed to make. What was going on in first century Israel at this time, in terms of the law, the rabbis had combed through the Torah, the first five books, and they extracted what they understood as six hundred and thirteen laws, written laws that they had to follow and they were they became so afraid of breaking those laws what they decided to do was to put what they called hedges or fences around those six hundred and thirteen laws. So that you would have to jump over and break all these hedges, which were non-binding, right? Before you ever got to uh, actual law that you could break. So they were protections. This is called the oral tradition. This was never written down until after Jerusalem fell in 70 AD at the hands of the Romans. At that point, with Jerusalem gone, the temple gone, they finally wrote it all down. This is what's called the Talmud in in the Mishnah, is the codification of this oral tradition. And this was hundreds of years in the making. So that's what Jesus is breaking here over and over again. Because what had happened was the Pharisees realized that their power came from this complicated system that nobody understood, and they, as the lawyers and the experts, all the people had to come to them to find out if they were in good standing or in bad standing, could they be part of the community, did they have to go and get dispensation from the the temple priests, and so on and so forth. And this oral tradition became as important as the written law, and in many cases, superseded the written law, and in many cases, superseded the notion of God's love. And so this oral tradition was such a burden on the people that Jesus had to break it down. What kind of burden was it? Let me just read a few paragraphs. This is, this is from my book. Um, but listen to what happened just in this one. Remember, this is just one law out of 613, the one to keep the Sabbath holy, right? So the fourth of the Ten Commandments is in Exodus 20 states, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day there is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work. That's all it says in the Decalogue. That's all it says in the Ten Commandments. But this commandment is echoed in other places in the Torah with some further details, such as at Exodus 35, verse 2 and 3, for six days work may be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a holy day, a Sabbath of complete rest to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. Wow. You shall not kindle a fire in any of your dwellings on the Sabbath day. So now we know that kindling a fire is included under servile work. That must not be done on the Sabbath. And we know that death was the official punishment for violation, though it was rarely carried out in ancient times. We have no evidence that it was carried out in ancient times. And when it comes right down to it, what constitutes work? Can I take a walk without breaking a Sabbath? Can my children play? Can we prepare a meal without a fire? Or what if the fire is still burning from the day before? Can I use it? Can I read? Can I carry a book from shelf to chair? Can I write? Can I deal with an emergency such as a broken bone or a hole in the roof? Can I care for my sick child? You see, once the letter of the law has been separated from the spirit or intent of the law, there is no end to the legal questions and permutations and interpretations that arise. The intent of the Sabbath law was simple: to provide a time of rest and refreshment of rededication to God and his purpose. The application of the letter of the law became a nightmare as rabbis of the Pharisaic tradition labored to define just what servile servile work entailed. The rabbis eventually delineated. 39 hedges or fences around the Sabbath law, as we described. 39 categories of activities that would be prohibited on Shabbat, the Sabbath. Again, that idea is, if we never break a hedge or a fence, we'll obviously never break a law. That was the whole idea for this, trying to preserve those 613 laws. But these are just 39 categories of work that they delineated. These 39 categories prohibited work that was either creative or existed, or exercised dominion over the environment and were loosely divided into four groups. Activities required to make bread, such as sowing, plowing, reaping, threshing, winnowing, grinding, sifting, kneading, or baking. Activities required to make a garment, such as shearing, washing, beating, dyeing, spinning, or weaving two or more loops of thread, tying, untying, stitching, tearing. Activities required to make leather, trapping, slaughtering, flaying, tanning, scraping, cutting, marking, writing, or erasing two or more letters. And activities that required to build a house, building, demolishing, kindling, extinguishing fire, finishing, or transporting objects more than four cubits. And remember, a cubit is just the distance from your elbow to your fingertips, so four cubits is not very far at all, just a few feet. But, here's the kicker. As, restic- as restrictive as these 39 categories may be, they were only categories of activities, each containing many more activities within them. So within each category of work, or melacha, there were direct derivative categories called toledot that carried nearly the same legal severity as the original melacha. Then, there were also indirect derivative activities called shavut that carried much less severe punishment if violated. In this way, baking, as melacha, carried within it the prohibitions against cooking, posting, and roasting, all toledot under baking. So even if you weren't making bread, there wasn't much else you could do in the kitchen either on Sabbath. So meals needed to be prepared the day before. And since winnowing, as Melecha, uh referred to, separating chaff from grain or making something edible, which was previously inedible, it was also unlawful to filter undrinkable water to make it drinkable or to pick small bones from fish. You've heard of gefilte fish, right? Ever had gefilte fish? So what do they do? They take the fish, they bone it, and then they grind it up and they poach it and they put it in jars so it's all ready to go. You don't have to take the bones out. You can just eat it. Just, it's probably it tastes a little strange to our taste, but this was the Ashkenazi's way of being able to deal with the Shabbat prohibitions. From one commandment to 39 malacha, to dozens of toledot and dozen more, dozens more shavut, Restrictions exponentially grew. And keeping in mind that the Sabbath commandment was only one of 613 laws, the rabbis recognize starts to bring the incredibly vast scope of the oral tradition into view. See what's going on here? Do you see why Jesus was revolting? Do you see what this was doing to the people? Do you see how they could not see anything except this block wall of laws that they couldn't even understand and always had to go to someone else, some authority, to be able to find out if they were okay or not. You know, even Jews today, if they're they're observant or if they're Orthodox, have a lot of problems in the modern world dealing with these oral traditions, which are now written down in the Talmud. So for the Orthodox, if you can't kindle a fire, that means you also can't turn on a light switch because that is considered kindling of fire. So any lights that you may need, you're gonna have to leave on from six o'clock on Friday night until six o'clock on Saturday night and just use them as they are. Can you use a fan? You know, that's kind of controversial. If you leave a fan on, is that okay? To have light, to have heat? Now, some Jews will set timers so the lights will come on at the right time during Sabbath. Or they have motion sensors through their house, so they walk into a room. But that's also controversial. Is that cheating? Is that violating at least the intent of the law here? And how about just opening your refrigerator door? If it turns on a light, you can't do it. You see how far this goes? The, The burden that is being put on when what Shabbat was supposed to be was a day of refreshment, a day of reconnection. It was about 10, I don't know, 15 years ago, probably now, we had a Jewish friend from England stay at our house for a few weeks. And on, on Saturday, on, on Sabbath, we wanted to go out and have lunch and take him to lunch. But because it was Sabbath, he said there was only so far that he could drive before he was violating Sabbath. So we had to plan our route very carefully and choose a restaurant that was within the, the space that he could drive. So that was okay. And once we got to the restaurant, he could eat, but he couldn't pay for the food. I thought that was kind of convenient. (laughs) But these were all the way he interpreted the Sabbath restrictions. But this has to do with the oral tradition. This is what Jesus is up against. So with all this, if Jesus had just healed with a word, there would have been no violation, not of the actual written Sabbath law and not in any of this vast oral tradition. If he had just spoken the word, there would have been no violation. But as soon as he made the mud, okay, then everything changed. Because making the mud was now kneading and everything changed. So deliberately, Jesus goes out of his way to break the oral tradition to make a point. And this is why I think that he used spit and mud because he was trying to make a point about this oral tradition and about the nature of sin. He did the same thing with the infirm man. He did heal the infirm man with just a word. He just stretch out your hand or... She- oh, no, he just told him, pick up your pallet and walk. That's what he told him. But as soon as he told him to pick up your pallet and walk, he's now transporting something more than four cubits, right? So he did the same thing with the man. It wasn't the healing that broke the oral tradition. It was picking up the pallet and walking that broke it. This, once again, is Jesus deliberately breaking the point. To put a finer point on it, let's take a look at Mark 12, starting at verse 9. This is the one where he's going to heal the withered hand. Departing from there, he went to their synagogue. So he's still in the Galilee, and um, in, in probably at the, at the shores of the, of the Sea of Galilee. And a man was there whose hand was withered. And they questioned Jesus, asking, who's they? The Pharisees, the religious authorities. They're setting him up. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, they ask him. So they've got, the, they've got the sacrificial lamb, right? They've got the case in point right there. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? And Jesus said to them, What man is there among you who has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath? Will he not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? So then... It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and it was restored to normal like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. So Jesus is being set up here. But if you notice, he just healed with the word. He didn't do anything else, right? So that should be no violation, shouldn't it? And Jesus reminds them that they can rescue their sheep. And he uses what's called the kalve Homer argument here. And that's literally light and heavy. So if something is true in the light instance, then how much more true is it going to be in the heavy instance? Jesus uses these arguments all the time. It was a, a, a rabbinical teaching technique, you know. So if your sheep is valuable and you're going to take it out of the pit, how much more valuable is a man on Shabbat, right? Healing was permitted, In that case, in fact, healing was considered a duty. A rescue was considered a duty, but only if it was life-threatening. Minor ailments were also still prohibited from being healed on the Sabbath. But if it was life-threatening, like the sheep, then they could act. And this was quoted in the, in the Mishnah. In fact, it was, it was stated this way in the Mishnah at Shabbat 22, 6. They may not set a fracture. So this is talking about on the Sabbath. You may not set a fracture. If someone's hand or foot is dislocated, you may not pour cold water over it. I don't really know what good that would do, but you may not do it. But you may wash it in the usual way. And if it heals, it heals. Interesting, huh? You may wash it in the usual way, and if it heals, it heals." So healing is permitted, basically, in the case of a non-life-threatening ailment, only as a byproduct of doing some other activity that is permitted. So still, even though Jesus healed with the word, since it wasn't life-threatening, he was still violating the Sabbath. Jesus violates the oral tradition purposely. Why? Because the whole system had become so absurd. And it so violated God's love. How did this happen? What took place here over several centuries in, in Israel? Because the whole system began with integrity. The Pharisees were legitimately trying to faithfully preserve their walk with God, which they call Halakha. But they became obsessed over time with the letter of the law. They became lawyers, and as I mentioned before, that gave them power over the people because the people had to keep referring to them to find out what the heck was going on, and that power corrupted them because it implied that only the law mattered, that God was only about obedience to his law. He was only about an inflexible justice, and here's Jesus coming to show that God is about mercy and compassion, at the expense of law. Even as Jesus says, I'm not abolishing the law, but he's reinterpreting it in light of God's love. Now, surely we've evolved past this kind of superstition, right? No, No, and don't call me Shirley. (laughs) You know, there's a a joke we tell about Baptists and Olden that maybe you've heard. Why don't Baptists allow premarital sex? because it leads to dancing. (laughs) Now, what is dancing? Well, see, sex outside of marriage is written law, right? Red letter law. Dancing, drinking, smoking can lead to sex. And so putting hedges, again, around the red letter law is what this is about. Remember the movie Footloose? dancing is is verboten why well, because it it's going to lead to all these terrible things, so dancing and smoking and drinking there are no laws against that, not in the Bible and not in our in our code. But how are smokers treated in most churches today? Think about that. how are smokers treated anywhere today pretty much, right? But the hedge, the fence has become more important than the law that it was meant to protect. And we're doing exactly the same things. I remember walking out of the church that uh, Marion and Scott and I were in. And as I was leaving, I was a member of the worship team and this old woman, older, elderly woman, I shouldn't say old woman, elderly woman is glaring at me as I'm leaving the church and she just says, there will be no electric guitars in heaven, I can tell you that. Again, style over substance, hedges over the law. We're doing the same thing. We can look at the Pharisees and think, how absurd, but the same thing is happening here. Maybe not to the same level of absurdity, but the intent is exactly the same, the damage is exactly the same, and the violation that it does to our notion of God's law, exactly the same. I'm sorry, God's love, exactly the same. Because if it's all about obedience, then what's love got to do with it? We just lost Tina Turner, didn't we? Yeah. So what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to deal with this? I've got one more healing story that I want to tell you. And let's read it. Mark 8, starting at verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to Jesus and implored him to touch him. Taking the blind man by the hand, Jesus brought him out of the village, and after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, for I see them like trees walking around. Then again, Jesus laid his hands on his eyes, and he looked intently and was restored and began to see everything clearly, And he sent him home, sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. Jesus was so adamant about not proclaiming what he was doing at this point in his ministry. So this is the story that that, uh, they added, and Jesus was practicing until he got perfect, right, got better at this, that he had to try it twice this time. Is that really what's going on here? Is that really what's happening? Once again, Jesus is healing with spit, with saliva, But this time there's no mud, and he doesn't need any mud because it's not the Sabbath. So this isn't a Sabbath violation. So he's making some kind of point, but what's really going on here? Why did he spit on the man's eyes? Now, in those ten reasons that I read, one of them said that the ancient world believed that there were healing properties in saliva, right, and especially over eyes. But that's not really completely true, or it sounds more spectacular than it was. They were thinking of saliva kind of the way we would think of some sort of ointment. So it was only good for topical issues, and it was only good if you kept using it over time, supposedly. But these were in secular or Gentile literature that you would find any allusions to this. If you go back into the Jewish literature, you don't find any of that. In fact, what you find is that spit, spittle, spitting was always disgraceful. It was an ultimate insult to spit in somebody's face. In fact, there was a law that uh, if a man's, uh, if a man died and left his wife childless, that the man's brother was supposed to take that woman into his harem, marry her, so that she wouldn't be alone. You know, a childless woman has no one to care for her if she's she's also a widow. If that brother would not marry this woman, the law says that she should spit in his face. That's what the Jews thought of spitting in faces. So it's not for Jews that this was any sort of healing idea. This was an ultimate insult. So it would have been shocking for Jesus' followers to see him spitting on this man's eyes the humiliation that he was perpetrating on this man. And yet, that that somehow led to a healing? I mean, what is going on here? Again, the context is going to help us. This healing story is laid against a larger story of the costs of discipleship. What is going to cost Jesus' friends to continue to follow him through everything that he's going to be about and everything that he's going to do? So let's finish to the end of the chapter here, starting at verse 27, still Mark 8. Jesus went out, along with the disciples, to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. This is right after he heals the blind man. And on the way, he questions his disciples and saying to them, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, but others one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, of course it's Peter, and said to him, you are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter he, Jesus, rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. And Jesus summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, if anyone wishes to follow me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it." These two, usually called percopies, these two short stories laid side by side, it's one of the principles we've talked about so many times in here. If something is laid side by side, if it's juxtaposed, there is a reason for that. The meaning is going to be linked and one can help define the other. And This is what I believe is happening here. One scholar had an interesting view of how to interpret this healing by spitting into the face and I think it's pretty good because what she said was that Peter and the disciples are like the blind man. They say they believe that Jesus is the Christ. That means Jesus is the avatar, Jesus is the son, Jesus is the representation, the image of God here in human form. They say that that's what they believe. He is that anointed one. But simple belief is just mental agreement And it costs nothing to have it, right? And so they say they believe, and they see him, but they see him dimly, like people walking around like trees. They really don't see the full extent. And remember, Jesus' disciples at this time, right up to the end, right through the crucifixion, still believe that Jesus was the Messiah that they culturally were waiting for, the warrior king who was going to galvanize an army and throw out the Roman occupation and restore Israel to a sovereignty and to a nation that would sit on the hill and be a beacon to all the Gentile nations. And they were looking for him to appoint them to positions of power. That's what they were still seeing of Jesus when they looked at him at this time. It's just like Nicodemus' belief, right? He was a leader of the Sanhedrin and the Jews. He had mental belief. But Jesus said, it's not good enough for you to be born of water. You need to be born of spirit, You need to be baptized a second time, born a second time, if you want to see what kingdom is all about. This is what Jesus is talking about. I think this is what this is representing. For Jesus, there must be the second tear, the second laying on of hands of the blind man before he saw clearly. And for Peter and the disciples, it was the moment of Pentecost when that clarity finally came to them when they finally were able to lean into the full power of the Spirit at that moment. But see, there is a cost for the second birth. There's something that needs to happen. So this descent that we're talking about all the the time, this letting go of everything we think we know and everything that we're clinging to in order to be able to really see what's right in front of us, risking everything that we hold dear, risking losing respect of the people around us when we take a particular direction, losing our status, maybe our jobs, losing friends, losing family, maybe even losing our lives as we act on our belief, as we actually take the faith step, which is acting on what we say is true. I don't know what your faith walk has looked like. I don't know what the decisions that you've made have looked like, but have you lost friends over it? Have you had to change churches over it? What have you lost because of what you believe that has brought you to this room here today? I know it's cost me a lot. This is what Jesus is talking about. I didn't come to bring you peace and tranquility and calmness, but the sword... Because that division that the sword represents, he says, is going to start in your own home. It's going to start with husbands and wives and parents and children. And then it's going to branch out from there. This is what happens when we take a stand. This is what happens when we start acting on the radical transformation that Jesus is bringing us. What is that going to cost? Are we willing to risk that? The spitting in the face of this blind man is the metaphor for that descent. It's the cost of the healing that Jesus is going to bring. As Richard Rohr said, it's the necessary suffering that takes place before the healing, before the transformation. And Jesus is again shocking his friends. He was doing that over and over again with his metaphors and with his actions. Their ideas of ascent to physical power is what Jesus is putting to rest here. You're going to move into a place of humiliation in terms of the way the people around you look. And they will need to accept the spitting before they can ever see the true nature of Jesus and his ministry and his calling and the God that he is here to represent and to show us. So if we put these healings together, What are they teaching us? What is Jesus showing us? Why did the scripture capture the details that it captured in order for us to be able to glean what's going on? And I think the bottom line here is what Jesus is over and over trying to get across to us is that you cannot obey your way into kingdom. You can't do it. It doesn't work that way. Because simply following law It's not going to get you where you need to go. That is an outside-in affair. Transformation occurs from the inside out. You can't obey your way into kingdom. You can't obey your way into God's love. We need to stop thinking legally and start thinking relationally before things are going to turn. Because sin is not unlawful behavior. Sin is living in the disconnection and living in the separation of a lack of relationship. That's sin. That's why he didn't tell the man born blind from birth to go and sin no more because he wasn't living that way. He wasn't living in a lack of relationship. He had that. To stop sinning is to reconnect, to be restored to relationship, which means to be forgiven to be restored to the way you were before things broke, to be healed, to be set free, all of that is what stopping sinning means. Now, does that make the law meaningless? Well, of course not. But it's important for us to understand that just like in recovery, abstinence is only the first step to recovery, and obedience is only the first step to kingdom It's like training wheels on the bike that we need just to get us far enough along the way so that we can shed them and then really fly. There's a huge quantum leap that happens from mere obedience to actual transformation. And Jesus is trying to get us over that hump. That's why he said it's like the wind. You can't see it. You don't know where it's coming from. You don't know where it's going. You're not going to be able to quantify it. You're not going to be able to put edges around it. You're not going to be able to control it. You can get on board, though, if you're willing to shed everything that's holding you down and weighing you down. It's a radical rewiring of everything we've been taught, everything we see in life, everything we think we know, and everything that we use for control. Just as Jesus says to the infirm man at the pool, do you wish to get well? And if we parse that Aramaic, it means, is it your deepest pleasure? Is it your deepest purpose to live in complete wholeness and healing and connection and unity? Is that what you are about? Yes or no? And when your deepest pleasure in life has become relationship, then obedience becomes just a mere byproduct of your purpose, your meaning, your identity. Your life will look like law, but the obedience is not primary. It's just living your life as you would live it, no matter what, whether anyone's looking or not. Obedience becomes the byproduct, not the ticket in the door. Because in kingdom, your life fulfills the law, not the other way around. And we have always been taught the other way around, and Jesus is trying to flip that as well. Your life will fulfill the law when you are living in the connection, in the healing and forgiveness of kingdom. And this, I believe, is the meaning of Pentecost This is the moment that Jesus' friends finally experienced in that upper room when the wind blew through and the tongues of fire descended and they finally realized their eyes were open. They weren't seeing trees anymore. They were seeing clearly because they had finally moved into that space, let go of the control and started blowing about in the breeze of spirit. And so this is what we pray for, that we will have our Pentecost moment In just the same way. Let's pray. So, Father, we do thank you again for these scriptural stories, these lessons that come to us out of the past. And we thank you for the churches who have given us these liturgical cycles that bring us back to these remembrances of what we're really about over and over again each year, year after year. That they are ways that you have spoken to us if we're willing to listen and showing us really what's going on here. So Father, help us to first think about these things and then let them settle in a deeper place to assimilate. And then finally, when we're ready to come out in our actions, when we're ready to risk acting on what we say we believe and paying the cost for whatever that may entail, whatever the consequences, but to live as you live, to make the choices that you would make and to find in our deepest delight and pleasure, simply the connection with you, with each other and with everything that you've created. Take us to our Pentecost moment as soon as possible, Father. And if we've already arrived, deepen that as soon as possible. Thank you, Lord, for your love, connection, and your complete devotion to us. Never let us forget we can only love because you loved us first. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.